The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, we start today with a man with a passion, a passion for medieval manuscripts. Let's hear what he has to say about it. Quote, of course, I am the most biased person in the world, but I think that medieval manuscripts are truly fascinating at so many levels. I want to know everything about them. I want to know who made them and when and why and where and what they contain and where their texts came from, why a particular manuscript was thought to be needed and how they were copied, and under what conditions, and how these affected the format and size, what materials were used, how long the manuscripts took to make, why and how they were decorated, and by whom, if they were decorated, and why not, if they weren't, and what they cost, and how they were bound, who used them, and in what way, how or whether they were retransmitted onwards in further copies, what changes were made to them later, where they were kept, how they were shelved and catalogued, how they have survived often against all odds, who has owned them, how they were bought and sold and for how much, for they were always valuable, under what circumstances they reached the custody of their current owners, and at every one of these questions, how we can tell. And quote, I love talking to people with passions. I find those people fascinating at so many levels. We'll talk to the author of that quote, Christopher de Hamel, about his passion for medieval manuscripts today on the History of Literature. Hmm, hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm glad you're here today. I'm a little sad to be saying goodbye to November in a few days, but such is autumn and such is life, a time for farewells, but also a time for beginnings like bringing out those winter coats and getting ready for the holidays and a new year. So today, let's do something a little different. We'll go straight into our conversation with Christopher DeHamel. He has a new book out. Speaking of the holidays, hint, hint, this is one to check out. It's a gorgeous book, the kind of thing you can give to someone who loves books, and they'll be happy to have it. So first, we'll talk to Christopher about his book, The Manuscripts Club, the people behind a thousand years of medieval manuscripts. And then we'll finish things off with a My Last Book. Let's see, who should we choose? Do we have a medievalist to make this a nice theme, or should we switch things up? Why don't we do that? How about our friend, the expert in comics, Maheen Ahmed? Let's see what she chooses as the last book she will ever read. But first, medieval manuscripts with Christopher DeHamel. Okay, joining me now is prize-winning author Christopher DeHamel, who previously wrote Meetings with Remarkable Manuscripts, which took readers on a journey through the medieval world through 12 manuscripts. He's a former librarian and a cataloger of illuminated manuscripts at Sotheby's. He's here today to discuss his new book, The Manuscripts Club, The People Behind a Thousand Years of Medieval Manuscripts. Christopher DeHamel, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. So I was hoping to start with your earlier book so we can set the stage for the new one and what you're doing in that. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Meetings with Remarkable Manuscripts? What did you set out to do with that book? 
Yeah, I'm really a manuscript historian. I've spent my life going around libraries and looking at manuscripts and writing about them. Mm-hmm. And the idea of the book was that great illuminated manuscripts live in many different places, in different countries, in different kinds of libraries. And it was a kind of come with me, O reader, and we will Mm. go together to the libraries to look at manuscripts. What's it like to look at a manuscript? How do you get there? How do you arrange it? What's it, you know, how do you feel when you're, you're, you know, you're sitting in some obscure little Italian library and they bring the book to your desk and you open it up? What's that experience like? What's the, what's the feeling of looking at a manuscript? Yeah. You know, let's look at it together. Talk mm-hmm. it through. What does the manuscript tell you? What can you learn about it? How do you discover where it comes from or how old it is or who made it or who painted it or where it's been? What are the clues we'd look for? And kind of imagine you're sitting beside me and we're doing it together. That's really the idea of that one. Right. Can we briefly define illuminated manuscripts so listeners know exactly what we're talking about? Strictly the word manuscript simply means written by hand, manuscriptum mm. in mm-hmm. Latin. So anything that is handwritten is technically a manuscript. We often use the term illuminated manuscript to distinguish the books of the Middle Ages, books before the invention of printing, which comes in in the mid-15th century. So books that were made by hand in the Middle Ages. Strictly speaking, the word illuminated means that it catches the light, like the word illumination in general. So it has gold or silver, which sparkles and glitters as you turn the pages. Of course, not all manuscripts contain gold. So many of them are decorated. And are they, we sort of use the term illuminated loosely. Mm -hmm. We use the term really to mean books of the Middle Ages. And the illuminations could be borders or large initial capital letters. All pictures, all illustrated. They're illustrated books right through the whole of Western history. And would you say these are primarily Christian texts? Many of them are, particularly in the early period, that's to say before about the year 1000, because Mm -hmm. really the only people who could read and write in that what we would now, what many people would now call the Dark Ages, uh, were people educated in or around the context of the church or monasteries. But in addition to those, there are countless texts that are nothing to do with religion, history, science, medicine, or classical texts, mm. philosophy, travel, natural history, animals, many, many subjects. So mm-hmm. really, the sum of human knowledge that has been written down survives through the medium of manuscripts. Now, were these created generally in monasteries, or were there also sort of secular illuminators? We're talking about a period of about 1,500 years, really from the late Roman Empire right up to the Renaissance and the Mm. invention of printing. Mm -hmm. So what happened in one place at one time is not always true for what happened everywhere else. Until about the year 1000, most manuscripts were probably made by monks or people trained in the church. By about 1200, so in other words, for the last 300 years of the Middle Ages, they were mostly made by professional, secular or lay scribes and illuminators. And the big cities like uh, uh, Paris and London and Florence and Venice and so on had professional scribes, professional illuminators. And if you wanted a book made, you would go to a professional scribe and order one so that they are really commercial productions. 
Right. And how long did it take to make one? It must have been very laborious to to copy out the text as well as design it and, and do the illustrations and everything. I mean, you are completely right. It is laborious. There is no quick way of copying a manuscript. I mean, you just, with all copied things, uh, we know how long it takes. You're looking back at your exemplar, you're writing down a few words, you remember you're looking back at it, you're copying it again. But of course, the answer depends on, of course, on how big the text is, what's in it, and also how many different people are doing it. So if you're mm. writing a really big book, you might divide it up among half a dozen people. And you could, if your exemplar is in loose pieces, you could all be working on it at once. So you might take a quarter each. And then when you know when you finished, you match it up, that would speed the time by four. Mm. But there is no there isn't a quick way of doing it until printing came in. And many of those scribes welcomed printing, because then they could produce books much, much faster than they mm. ever could. Right. I think really, to, to come back to your question, depending on the size of the book, I think it's probably a matter of weeks mm-hmm. or occasionally months to produce a book. It's not years and years. Mm-hmm. You know, you can copy out in a day. You know, if you're working for eight hours, you can probably copy eight pages. So you can do a page an hour. Why not? Yeah. Actually, you could probably do more than that. You probably do two pages now. You could do 16 pages in a day. Say the book has 160 pages. You do it in 10 days. Right. Um, if the two of you were doing it, you'd do it in eight days. Oh, no, five days. I've lost my sum. So, yeah, I mean, it, take, it takes time. And then, of course, you have to, as you say, design it. You have to find your exemplar. You have to decorate it. That's quite slow. Painting a picture is slow. You've got to put on gold leaf. You've got to make the binding. I think if you ordered a standard book in the Middle Ages from a bookshop, you'd expect to pick it up in a month or so. Yeah. Now, is it possible to tell who made one, or are there particular illuminators or monasteries with particular styles? Uh, The answer to both those questions is yes, of course, and Mm -hmm. that is what we medievalists spend our time doing. Sometimes scribes wrote their names at the end of books, so we do actually know the names of a very large number of scribes, and there is a current project in Switzerland for recording, indexing the names of scribes who've signed medieval manuscripts. And they're up to about 12,000 names so far. So already, you know, you may think all these books of the Middle Ages are anonymous. Well, before anything else, we know the names of about 12,000 of them, which is not nothing. In addition to that, there are, of course, questions of style. And as there are in all aspects of the history of art and architecture and anything else. Most of us can look at a house, you know, walk down the street and you can say that those houses were built in the 1920s, Mm, these ones, mm -hmm. that looks like the 1950s and so on. And you'd probably be right. And the same, of course, applies to art. Most people could look at a painting and say, that looks 20th century, that looks 19th century and so on, and apply that back to manuscripts. And yes, you can, by style alone, you should be able to localize and data manuscript within a generation or two. Mm. Of course, styles evolve, handwriting evolves. We know it does. Right. Uh, you can look at a letter from your grandparents or your great-grandparents. It's different from our handwriting. It's right. hard to say how, but it looks more old-fashioned. Run that back through history. And that's, that's what we call paleography. That is the, the dating of manuscripts by script. Right. Among medievalists, are there people who have favorites the way we might say, you know, my favorite painter is Picasso or Van Gogh? Are there individuals who have risen to that kind of prominence? I think most manuscript historians will have particular areas they're enthusiastic about or work on or know most about. Mm -hmm. I'm probably 
more of an exception in that I've no taste at all. I think they're all wonderful. <laughs> um, and so I'm prepared to jump around from the 10th century to the 15th and from Italy to England and, and over to Germany. And I think they're all fascinating for different reasons. But of course, there are certain periods that are simply superb. And if mm. you had to pick the really good ones, I think most people would agree that, say, Irish manuscripts of the 8th century are luminescent, fantastic, those great swirling initials and, in, you know, intertwined dragons and things. They're wonderful. Mm. Um, the 12th century produces most exquisite books, absolutely wonderful, almost often rather like Byzantine icons, great staring faces and deep, deep colors. Right. And then, say, Paris around 1400, beautiful delicate, elegant, gothic, uh, shimmering with color. Maybe the Netherlands in the early 16th century, they're like panel paintings, like little miniature Van Eyck's or Memling's. I mean, they're just, they're enchanting. But they're all fascinating for different reasons. Yeah. Now, how has your professional life brought you into contact with these books? Do you know, I'm not sure that question doesn't begin the other way around. I started looking at manuscripts when I was about 12. Mm-hmm. Um, the local public library near where my parents lived uh, had a small collection and we were then living in New Zealand and you may think America is a long way from medieval Europe but believe me Dunedin New Zealand is <laughs> twice as far and there's very little of the middle well there's nothing of the middle ages in New Zealand or Australia or America except what moves and what moves are the manuscripts and, and I like many teenagers got rather keen on the middle ages and I was absolutely bowled over by these things. We don't have medieval cathedrals and Gothic architecture and so on in New Zealand, but what they do have is manuscripts. It was a schoolboy hobby. Then I specialized in manuscripts at university. Then because of the manuscripts, I got a job at Sotheby's cataloging medieval manuscripts for sale. And I worked there for a little over 25 years full time and then as a consultant after that. And then I took a job in Cambridge, Cambridge University in England, mm. responsible for a really major library of medieval illuminated manuscripts. And those are really the only two jobs I've ever had. But I think the manuscripts came first. Right. Okay. So it was a a, a hobby or a, a passion for you. A passion, a passion. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And people start off and say, well, will I ever get a job? Well, go for it. You never know. May happen. So what was it? Was it their beauty? Was it that you were in love with books and these were a, a particular kind of book to see something handwritten? Or or maybe I should just ask the question, what is it like to encounter one? How does it strike you? And, and is it the same now as it was when you were 12 years old? Yes, it's exactly the same now, except they're older than they were when I was 12 years old. Mm. <laughs> I think there is... First of all, I think there is a tremendous thrill in holding in your hands, I mean, really touching and turning the pages and feeling the weight and, and really directly encountering and engaging mm. with a human object, with a, oh, an object made by humans, made by people, completely made by hand hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Mm -hmm. And as a kind of trigger to the imagination, I can't think of anything that is as evocative and as uh, as deeply moving as actually really looking at what entranced them, yeah. looking at the illumination, peering at it, trying to see how it's done, trying to see where the hands change. And if you like, though not 
always necessary. You can read the text and suddenly they begin to talk and and they're talking with words. I mean, they're, they're actually, you know, they're coming, it's coming straight out at you. Right. They're often illuminated. In fact, most medieval books have some decoration. Even fairly simple textbooks will have initials, usually in red and blue or other colors. And the art of them is really the best preserved examples of medieval art which we have. Hmm. Um, most wall paintings have gone, tapestries have faded or crumbled. Most painting on wood hardly survives or survives in terribly rare examples. But manuscripts survive in very, very large numbers. And you can really follow the history of art through manuscripts so that some great museums, the Getty Museum is a good example, will you know, have classical art, antiquities, and Renaissance art, and they use manuscripts to bridge the gap, to bridge the gap between them. And it is really the only way we can follow the history of art at all comprehensively from the 8th, 9th, 10th century, right through to the Renaissance in Italy and eventually in, in Northern Europe. And many of the great artists of the Middle Ages worked on manuscripts. So at the late period, people like Perugino and Raphael and Holbein and, and, and so on were also decorated manuscripts. There's a, mm. a Dante manuscript in Berlin with drawings by Botticelli. Mm. No less. I mean, it really is Botticelli. And that that real sense of encountering art is also a huge appeal of these things. Yeah. I would guess you could sort of see what they were thinking as they were reading, in a sense. Uh, sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes you can. If a text has never been illustrated before and the artist is designing pictures and putting in illuminations for the first time, right. you get a real idea of what he thought of the text. He's reading it through. He thinks, I think I understand what that means. And then he does a picture. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, though, of course, they're copying illustrations or designs of illustrations which they've already had in their exemplar. So in that sense, what he's trying to do is make a copy. Uh, he may be adapting it or altering it a bit, but he's reproducing a picture that has already been used. So you don't really know what he's thinking. Right. Now, we've been using the pronoun he. Were there any women or is this exclusively male? Undoubtedly, there were women. And in the late Middle Ages, we know quite a lot about female well, we know, well, the illuminators tended to work in families. Mm. I mean, if you were a craftsman in any field, a husband and wife team, the children would take over and so on. And the children are as likely to be women as they are men. The widows sometimes take over. And in those cases, we know their names. In the earlier period, when they're written mostly by monks, and they are, they are, I mean, it has to be said, the majority of them were written by men because men tended to be better educated. But in that period, every so often, you'll find a little inscription at the end or somewhere in which the scribe says something like, pray for me, your servant, or something like that. And, it, and it'll be in the female form. So pro ancilla tua for, for your servant or peccatrix rather than peccator. In other words, a sinner. This is a monastic a religious person writing about themselves the female form, and you can tell that must have been done by a nun. Mm. So, the, yes, they do exist. Right. And what do we owe to this practice? I, I mean, in addition to, you already made the case for, it gives us a window into medieval art that we might not have had yes. otherwise. How about the texts? I mean, I gather that, that some of them may have preserved those. It is the sole means by which we have all literature, from before about 1500. Mm -hmm. So all of classical texts, I mean, you know, right through from Cicero and Virgil and Homer and so on, 
um, all biblical texts, all religion, both in Western Europe and in uh, Judaism and Islam, survives entirely through the medium of manuscripts. Great literature of the Middle Ages, Dante, Chaucer, the Roman La Rose, Neva Lungalid, all those books we know only because they were transmitted through manuscripts. So in a sense, all knowledge, all human knowledge for thousands of years was transmitted by manuscripts. Right. And if they had said, well, this is too difficult or too expensive, or they didn't have the, the wherewithal to, to copy these out like this, that basically we'd be now dealing with, I guess, crumbling parchments and, and stone tablets and so on. Yes, yes. I mean, some, some classical texts do not survive. I mean, there are yeah. authors whom, or texts which we know about from other people referring to them, of which we do not have a full text. The most famous example is probably the History of Rome by Livy, mm. of which we have a considerable part, but we haven't got all of it, simply because manuscripts were not copied. And others, not many, but some, survive in only one manuscript. So the greatest work of old English literature, Beowulf, mm. exists in a single manuscript, just one. And some later medieval texts are similar. The Mort d'Arthur um, of Thomas Mallory survives only in one manuscript, the Book of Marjorie Kemp, another great Middle English text. Again, a single manuscript. And the difference between one and none is only one. And that mm. could have been other... Logically, there could have been other texts as great as Beowulf that don't survive. It's possible. Yeah. Do we basically know all of the ones that have been found? Are there, I mean, these are so special and rare. My guess is that they're not the kind of, you know, thing you hear about, you know, after grandma passed away, we looked in the attic and we found uh, letters or things like that. Can happen, does yeah. happen. I worked for Sotheby's for long enough to have enough stories <laughs> of people who would come into the counter, and it did happen just occasionally to say, we've always had, we often wonder what this thing is. And they unwrap, they bring the thing out of the box, trembling with excitement. And they say, you know, and, and yeah. most of the time, you're disappointing people. But just occasionally, something amazing turns up, and your heart leaps, and you think, goodness, it can happen. However, they are not archaeological objects. They've always been above ground. They've always mm. belonged to people. Mm -hmm. um, they've been in, uh, whether individuals or libraries, they've been, in theory, they've been knowable, even if we don't necessarily know them. And if something really grand exists in a, in a, in a private, in private possession, probably at some stage, they're going to have shown it to somebody. I mean, somebody will have seen it. Whereas if you're an archaeologist, at any moment, something extraordinary could happen. They could discover another tomb, you know, in the Valley of the Kings, greater than Tutankhamun, which would change everything. That could happen. It's not likely that an entire library, an entire, even a great gospel book of the period of the Book of Kells mm. is going to turn up completely unknown. It's they're not, you know, they're not excavated. They've always been somewhere. But they do exist in private hands. It could happen. Right. Okay. Well, that kind of takes us into the new book. So let's take a quick break, oh, and yeah. then we'll come back with more from uh, Christopher DeHamel.
Hello everyone, this is Jack here to tell you about a way to eat better and easier. That's right, Factor, and their delicious, ready-to-eat meals. These things are amazing, chef-crafted, always fresh, never frozen. All you do is heat them up and you're ready to go. No prepping, cooking, or cleanup, and you get something healthy, nutritious, and tasty. I love Factor meals, especially on those days when I'm in the office. They're better for me than snacks or junk food, and much cheaper and faster than buying my lunch at a restaurant. You can choose options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, and you can change your schedule to get as much or as little as you need every week. Whatever suits you and your family best. Head to factormeals.com literature50 and use code literature50 to get 50% off. That's code literature50 at factormeals.com slash literature50 to get 50% off. Hey, grown-ups! the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, we're back. So, Christopher, you know, we've had over 100 guests here on the podcast, but I believe that you're the first one we've had who had Pope Benedict XVI and the Archbishop of Canterbury bow down before him on live television (laughs) in front of the high altar of Westminster Abbey. So why don't you tell us what happened there? (laughs) Well, that's a... That's the story which is actually recounted in the first chapter of the first book. What I was writing about there is the Gospel Book of St. Augustine. This is a uh, late 6th century manuscript, which used to be in my own custody in Corpus Christi College in Cambridge, Hmm. where I am a fellow and was responsible for the Parker Library there, where the book uh, has been since the 16th century. It's the first book known to have been in England, or the first surviving book that has been in England longer than any other book. And it was almost certainly sent over to England by St. Gregory as part of the mission to convert the English at the very, very end of the 6th century, and is a deeply evocative and important survival and an extremely well-known book. Uh, And it was used recently, actually, for the coronation of our new king, Charles III. But when Pope Benedict came to England about 10 years ago, can't remember exactly, they did a combined service in Westminster Abbey in London for the Pope and the Archbishop of Canterbury and many others. And the reason for doing it, or one of the reasons for doing it in Westminster Abbey, is that that was itself a Benedictine monastery Mm. originally. And 
the idea of you know a Benedictine pope uh, should be welcomed in a, in a Benedictine monastery founded in the name of St. Peter seemed particularly appropriate. And they arranged that I would bring this manuscript down from Cambridge and they would venerate it as a kind of a relic at the beginning of Christianity in England and a symbolic one because it was sent to England by a pope. I mean, uh, Christianity in England came through Rome and I never actually met the pope, but I was holding it when they venerated it, and that's really the story you're asking about. Right. So in that book, you talked about 12 manuscripts, and you took us through 12 journeys. And the new book, once again, we have 12 chapters, but instead of books, you take us through people. Yeah, the sort of idea of the new one, the sort of real theme behind it is that if you have an enthusiasm for any subject, any specialist subject, and it can be anything, it can be music or railway engines or Jane Austen or postage stamps, that enthusiasm, that shared delight crosses all boundaries and all barriers. And mm. you can meet people of the widest range of backgrounds and education and you know social upbringing and, and wealth and age, and you all meet as equals. And we all know what it's like when you go to a conference on a a specialized subject and mm -hmm. young and old and different nationalities sit down anim animatedly at breakfast chattering away because they have such a lot in common and the idea was to take that kind of shared enthusiasm with which we're, we're all familiar not across the world sort of horizontally but back through history mm. and kind of imagine that we could go right back to, say, the 11th century and meet somebody enthusiastic about manuscripts or the 15th century or the 18th century. What do we have in common? What is it that excited them? What did they like? Why did they like it? What would it have been like to meet somebody who knew these manuscripts? And as we said a moment ago, manuscripts are not dug up. They've always been somewhere. They've always been there. Mm. And the manuscripts wind their way through history, interacting with different people all through history. And let's eavesdrop on them a little bit and kind of see how people used them and how they kept them and how they stored them and why they talked about them and what they liked about them, what they didn't like, what they kept, what they rebound, what they were worth, how they bought them, how they sold them, how they kept them, how they copied them, what they were, how they, they kind of work their way through history through the eyes of a dozen different fellow enthusiasts and i've invented this concept of the the manuscript enthusiast club of course there isn't one i've made it up and um and time travel as such of course isn't possible i mean we can't really go back into history but just imagine we could mm. and who would we talk to what would we ask them right um, if you were doing exactly the same interview now with the duke de berry in the early 15th century or with Sir Robert Cotton, a fanatical collector of manuscripts in London in the early 17th century, what would you ask him? And how would his answers be different mm. from the same questions asked of an 11th century monk or a 17th century rabbi or a 19th century librarian? And they would be different. But that spark of enthusiasm and delight and fascination would run through the whole thing. Right. And in looking at the chapters, I, I feel like we're on a pilgrimage to Canterbury. We have the monk, the bookseller, the illuminator, the antiquary, the rabbi, the savant, the librarian, the forger, the editor, the collector, and the curator. 
They're all in there. I tried to choose people with the widest possible range. Of course, the temptation would be to, to do, if you like, collectors all the way through. But then they'd be too similar to each other. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm fascinated by collecting. I mean, I, I completely understand that, you know, <laughs> right. thrill about collecting. But, but you don't want too many of those. So there were people who made manuscripts, who looked after them, who, who sold them, who studied the art or who studied the text, who read them, who edited them, who forged them. You know, all the different reasons, reasons for wanting manuscripts. Yeah. Did you have these people in mind from your decades of research, or did you set out to find them for this book? I don't think there's anyone here I'd never heard of before. Mm -hmm. But I mean, from a purely practical point of view, I had to choose people about whom we know enough information mm -hmm. to be able to tell a story. So there's one manuscript illuminator in there. He's Simon Benning. He was a great Flemish illuminator artist of the early 16th century and we know quite a lot about him quite a lot of i mean the archival records about him we know uh, when he was born we know when he died we know the names of both his wives and indeed his girlfriend uh, who his children were, were approximately where he lived when he was a member of the guild were you know when he'd paid his dues and so on and you can tell a story about him if we chose many artists in the middle ages we don't even know their names so you couldn't write a chapter about somebody who's not documented. So I tried to choose people where we have enough information. So St. Anselm, we begin with as an example of a monk. He was canonized not so long after his death and biographies were written of him and people kept things by him. So we know a lot about him. We have letters from him. We know where he was, what he was doing, how he was working on manuscripts. The Duke de Berry was the brother of the King of France. He's well documented. There were wonderful inventories of his libraries with beautiful descriptions of the manuscripts. And we can almost get the experience of walking around the library in his company. Sir Frederick Madden in the 19th century kept a really detailed diary, many, many, many pages every day for about 60 years, little over 60 years. I've read every page of it and it's unpublished, but it's, it's fascinating. And you really, you kind of get to know the man mm -hmm. by the amount of information that's available. And there has to be enough to be able to do that, to, to weave a narrative through it. I'm guessing you were pulling from a lot of letters or diaries as well as previous biographies of these people? Yes, yes, of course. In a sense, whatever you can. And sometimes we don't know so much, but of course, the older you get, the less, the less you can be sure of anything. But it's a very human story comes through here. This is the first book was about objects, libraries and objects. This is a, this is a book about people. This is the people you talk to in the tea rooms and in the, the queue as you're waiting to get your reader's ticket renewed. It's the, the people you talk to in the, the classroom and in, uh, in the places you visit. And, and this is shared enthusiasm. Mm. So you begin the introduction of this book with at a dinner of the Medieval Manuscript Society meeting in 2016 in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I just think yeah. I'm not living my life as well as I should be. I, I need to be involved with things like the Medieval Manuscript Society. I completely <laughs> agree with you. you would be, it would be a pleasure to have you as a member. <laughs> But as I said before, there are specialized clubs and societies in every field. So I'm I'm guessing it's like a group of people who love fine wine and describe the yes, tastings yes. they've had exactly, or, exactly. or mountaineers exactly who've, you know, here's a, a summit I've been up. So what's what's discussed 
at the society meetings? Is it, guess what I got to hold in my hands last month? Um, or, you know, here's one that you should seek out. You can go and yeah, all that, visit the, all yeah. that. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it does exist and it's perfectly true. It doesn't meet terribly often. And we meet mostly for dinners or to look or to coincide with exhibitions. And we go out. And the idea is, I mean, this is, this is true. I mean, this is not part of the book. It encompasses people who are interested in manuscripts for any reason. So mm. many of them may be professional librarians or curators or academics or editors or people who are working on particular texts. But there are also students and monks and illuminators, people who still make them uh, enthusiasts, people delighted by them, collectors dealers, anybody whose life kind of involves and centers around manuscripts. All that is completely true and it, it's real and it does exist. But the idea then is to turn that whole concept the other way around and push it right back through history and imagine that we could all meet together. And at the very, very end of the book, I kind of imagine a completely fictional and utterly impossible dinner in the Morgan Library in New York when all my 12 people actually meet together around a table, what would they actually say to each other? What would they really have in common? And I think it would be very noisy and very jolly and totally <laughs> fascinating. But, um, and I wasn't sure whether my publishers would allow me to indulge in that half page of fiction at the very end, but we got away with it. Now, would you, I mean, other than they all have enthusiasm for these manuscripts, are there other things that you can say about them collectively? Are they are they people with uh, an interest in history or an interest in literature or any other common traits? Um, I think you can say all that. And uh, <clears throat> we were trying to choose ones who had, the, as I said, the widest range of reasons for being interested in manuscripts, both as, say, as working texts or as examples of illumination or as specimens in the history of art or connoisseurship or as uh, as evidence for the survival of classical texts or as uh, as objects for museums and so on. So they have different reasons for wanting to do it. What they have in common is they're all enchanted with the same thing, mm. the same object, the same actual thing. And many of the actual manuscripts weave their way in and out of the story and come back again in different chapters. So, for example, possibly the most famous late medieval illuminated manuscript which is the Très Riche uh, of the Duke de Berry. This is this uh, uh, famous book of ours in Chantilly in France with that calendar with which most people will be familiar, showing the peasants in the field doing the different occupations of the month. And there's great round-topped images with a blue sky above and, and, and the sign of the zodiac in the sky and often castles and peasants and noblemen performing different things in the foreground. We produced a million times. That book was made for the man who is the subject of the second chapter of the book, the Duke de Berry. It comes back again. The man in the fourth chapter, Simon Benning, saw it in Belgium in the 16th century when it... It belonged to the regent of the Netherlands. Um, it comes back again in my chapter on Frederick Madden because mm. it was brought into him. It had been in a sale in Genoa, and the man who bought it brought it into the British Museum to show to Madden and said, what is this? Tell me about it. And he makes little drawings for it, same manuscript. It comes back again two chapters later when Sidney Cockerell in Cambridge took Bernard Shaw to see it in France. And it comes back again in my own life. I've been to see it twice and have turned its pages. And that kind of friends we have in common is something that runs right through. Half a dozen of us know the same book. And there's a thrill of there's a fascination in that. Yeah, right. It's as if you were talking earlier about how 
part of the thrill is knowing that you're looking at something that was created by hand and that it was yes. something. And I actually found that when I went to see recently uh, a copy of Shakespeare's first folio. Oh, yeah. And it was behind glass and I couldn't touch it. But also I felt like there was some distance from me because I was looking for Shakespeare. But of course, this book came out posthumously and it came out after his death and it is printed. So yeah, it was printed. Every copy of Shakespeare's first folio is slightly different, a little from different every other right. copy. So each one is important. Then there will be variations. And you can look at, the, I mean, I mean Shakespeare is far too modern for me, but you can look at one <laughs> of those books. And if you really look at it, you can see which bits have been used and which haven't and, you know, where they've, what they've underlined and what pages are thumbed and where they were reading it and how it survived and who's owned it and what book plate it has and so on. And I think you can, in addition with the manuscripts, in addition to what the thrill that we get out of interacting with the object, I think you learn more about the object too mm -hmm. by knowing where it's been, right. how it survived, who's owned it, who's copied it, why they made it, where it's been shelved, how it is, you know, uh, whether it was appreciated, whether it wasn't, how it was read, what pages are worn, which ones are annotated, which ones aren't, how it's been used. And I think we learn more about some of the great manuscripts of the Middle Ages by knowing what company they've kept and yes. where they've been and how they've survived. And I think uh, just to look at them as things that leap from a thousand years ago into a modern museum is to miss part of that whole uh, story. You use the word pilgrimage, but that story, this journey that manuscripts have made through right. history, um, right. leaving footprints where they go and tracing those journeys is fascinating. Yeah, they're gathering history along the way. They're gathering history, and people are interacting with them and using them differently. Mm. And that tells us about the object as well as about the people. So we not only learn about uh, uh, you know, our fellow enthusiasts in history, but you also look at the manuscript with slightly different eyes, knowing where it's been and who's used it and how it's been kept. Mm. So I have a theory about these manuscripts, and I was oh, yeah. going to run it past it. you as a complete novice, and I'm going to ask if, this, uh, if I'm on the right track here. So I... I, you know, in, in my experiences with religion and in traveling to churches and, and yes. things like that, I, I came to realize that there were sort of two approaches to the way to inspire. And one of them is, you know, the glamour and the grandeur of uh, St. Peter's, for example. And the other yes. is, you know, that you come across a humble, modest room that was nevertheless used for worship by a small community or, you mm. know, something that's very old. And I've been in very old churches that felt almost like a cave for how primitive and hidden they were, but they were as inspiring as, as walking into St. Peter's. And it kind of reminds me of the, the Indiana Jones movie where he's looking at the Holy Grail and he, he has all these gorgeous goblets in front of him. And he, but he says, no, it must be this simple wooden vessel. A carpenter's son would have a, a cup yeah. like this. And it seems like these illuminated manuscripts kind of combine both of those. You have, on the one hand, the most beautiful book you could imagine, ornate and, and celebratory of the text, and it kind of it it kind of escalate or elevates this work into something that's beyond a book that I would have uh, a paperback book that I would buy at a bookstore today. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know that it's so painstakingly prepared, letter by letter and word by word, and you see all the labor that went into it. It's kind of a a tribute to the humility of a human who has spent so much time and, and effort creating this. So is is that kind of the, am I on the right track here? You feel both of those? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've said, you've said a whole 
series of multiple observations, every <laughs> single one of which I agree with. Um, there is something very human about them, and they are, you know, we just come back. They are handmade, and look closely, and you'll you'll notice things have gone wrong. He's copied a word out wrong. He's made a mistake. He's crossed yeah. it out. He's had to erase it. He's moved it back. He's got it wrong. He's got the thing upside down. He's misread the word. You know, and and of course, if you're editing a text, that is very very important because um, each time somebody copies something, they're going to make slight mistakes. Everybody does, and then the next person who copies it will copy that mistake or will try and correct it and may correct it wrongly. And, and that's, that's the kind of essence of these great family trees of, um, of texts, which mm -hmm. is what textual historians spend their lives doing. And it, 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 it's completely fast constructing the, you know, the, the genealogy of, a, uh, of how a text descends is through human error, uh, things, things that have gone wrong. I mean, that is one whole level of, of kind of humanity in it. There is the religious, well, you mentioned religion too. Many of them are not religious, but mm -hmm. there is I find rather moving in the Christian creed when we talk about the kind of community of saints, that sort of sense of we are sharing mm. a religion, uh, an experience with people from hundreds or thousands of years ago. And you can get that sort of thrill of reading through a, a prayer book or a missal or a service book or a Bible, and you get a little kind of tingle mm. knowing that that really meant something to somebody a thousand years ago. The, the kind of communion of saints applied to books, I find these can be deeply, deeply moving. And there is quite a strong tradition. One tradition of manuscript collecting comes out of religion. And there have been, right through history, there have been uh, religious collectors, often quite low church. So Baptists, uh, Quakers, Methodists, evangelicals have very often collected Bibles, Bible manuscripts, because they are sort of relics. I mean, relics mm. of, of long, long ago, relics of the Word of God to them. That is one reason for collecting, not the only one. There are others who collect them and don't read them at all and don't care a jot about religion and look at them from a completely different perspective. But it is one way of doing it, yes. Mm. You have lived an amazing life. Is there anything that you want to do that you haven't done? <laughs> oh, don't we all want to do things? <laughs> I'm actually rather fascinated by, among many other things, by damaged manuscripts, manuscripts where pages or initials have been cut out. Oh. Um, it used to happen sometimes, still does occasionally. And I think one of the greatest manuscripts in England is yeah really at the top end is the Winchester Bible. This is a uh, a mid twelfth century huge multi volume richly illuminated Bible which still belongs to Winchester Cathedral in southern England where it was made in the mid twelfth century and has the most fantastic illumination. About a dozen of its illuminations were cut out probably in the late eighteenth early nineteenth century though that's not quite certain. One turned up in nineteen forty six. Oh, I'd love to find the others. <laughs> That's one thing. <laughs> How many more do you want? Okay, well, let's stop there. The book is called The Manuscripts Club, The People Behind a Thousand Years of Medieval Manuscripts. Christopher DeHamel, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. It was a pleasure. And finally today, as promised, Maheen Ahmed. After I talked to her about her passion for comics... 
in her editing of the Cambridge Companion to Comics, I asked her this special question. Okay, I'm joined now by Maheen Ahmed, editor of the Cambridge Companion to Comics, published by Cambridge University Press. Maheen, this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either choose one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. This is a really tough question mm. because, A, I haven't read all the books. And yeah. B, I, well, there's always this writers always surprise me and that's what's fascinating about that so uh, i don't think i have yeah. the imagination to imagine the the book that has not yet been written <laughs> so um I, I i think the one the one book that is still very much on my mind and has been on my mind for a long time is jesse ball's the divers game the divers game yeah, I, I'll be happy if that if that's the last book I read. I will read it again, and I, I think that that would be the perfect book because it's um it's a beautiful book. It's very painful. It's poetic, poetically written. It it sort of points to all these everyday injustices that are sort of ingrained in just our lives. They're just just like and how we sort of acquired a certain indifference to it and it's told through it follows a few children and this post-apocalyptic society that is divided into different kinds of um yeah ranks so some people have privileges and others completely don't and some people are just constrained to get to us and so forth and mm-hmm. it's um it's a very it's a very troubling but also beautiful novel so that yeah. was I, I was hesitating with a comic as well, a graphic novel, of which I've just read the first volume because the second volume is in the making, but I'm just sure the second volume will also be great. It's this, um, it's this immense graphic novel by Emil Ferris. My favorite thing is Monsters, hmm. which, is also, which is also told through the perspective of a child growing up in the 60s as a mixed race, um, queer girl. And it's it's a beautiful story. It's 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 about the love of comics, but also the love of art and just problems with growing up and family and it's very moving and beautifully illustrated and so forth. Right. Okay. Well let's talk for a minute about Jesse Ball and the Divers game. I have asked this question now maybe seventy five or eighty times, I'm guessing. <laughs> And I think you're the first person to select a dystopian fiction as your, <laughs> as your last book. <laughs> so I'm guessing there must be something uplifting in there, somewhere in there. Oh, no. I, I don't think there's anything uplifting about no. it. No, no. There's, there, there's a zoo that has no animals anymore, except one, which is not mentioned, but his mate died. And so he's... That, Animals aren't going to survive anymore. People have to wear these gas masks. Um, yeah, <laughs> there, there's there is no hope. But I I, I think there's it's just no that it, it <laughs> no, but he puts the finger on all the things that we sort of have been forced to accept that are just so wrong. Mm. The refugee issue, for instance, just general exploitation of people just because that's the system and some people just can't move up through the system because that's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. And he does it in a very smart way. It's, um, it's very, yeah, 
I don't know why. I just think that it's it's a book that you need to read. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe that's the thing to do is to, you know, rather than cling to this world is to, to really go deep into the idea that it's kind of can be kind of a horrendous place and that uh, <laughs> what we're headed for is probably going to be better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess maybe that, that was the logic. I don't know. It's, 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 it's beautifully written. It's, it's ah. really a book that's very concise. It's very, he, he, yeah, he is a poet too, right? So he, it's, a, it's a wonderful book. It's, I mean, most good literature is painful anyway. Mm. Like you mm-hmm. can't have a happy book that's good as well, or at least I don't know of one. So. Yeah, yeah. And they can expand us. I mean, when you read things yeah. like that, it, it asks something of us and maybe asks us to find the beauty ourselves in the story or in the writing that is kind of a testament to the the triumph of the human spirit to read a book I'm reading descriptions of it here. It says the latest novel from acclaimed author Jesse Ball depicts a world both unimaginably unjust and all too believably cruel. A pair of girls navigate the perimeters of a segregated city armed with canisters of killing gas. This is going to put us in the frame of mind of, well, where can we look for the ray of hope or for the flower blooming among the post-apocalyptic landscape? Yeah, I, I think it's more about, for me, it was just about, I, I was thinking that after reading this book, people can become better people, even in their own little way. They could, mm. they could be, yeah. But obviously, this is the last book I would read, so then there's, but <laughs> it, it's just a, yeah, I, it just made me aware, things that I was aware of, but also it just sort of drove it home, how these are little, little things that sort of contribute to a bigger system of unfairness mm-hmm. there's also some if you read the descriptions or I, I, I think it's on the internet or also the way i'm describing it i'm maybe not doing justice to the to the beauty of the language as well mm-hmm. it's, um, mm-hmm. it's something that sticks with he he, he changes his, he manipulates it in such a way that he you, you, you sort of shift um perspectives and and worlds but they're always often seen through the eyes of children, but in a very non-nostalgic, very down-to-earth, realistic way. Mm. But at the same time, it's poetic. So, <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's sort of just beautiful in in itself, as in, even though the story itself is is very painful. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Mahin Ahmed. Thank you so much for joining me on the history of literature. Thank you for having me. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of The History of Literature. My thanks to Maheen Ahmed for the cameo appearance, and of course to Christopher DeHamel. Please do check out his book, The Manuscripts Club. Consider that one for your wish list. And buying guides this holiday season. We will be back next time with a look at pirates by an expert in pirates and witches, too. She's got a personal connection to both of those things, as it turns out. And we'll have some Shakespeare's White Others soon, and some Mike Palindrome reading some D.H. Lawrence before too long, and our special Booker Prize winning guest. I'm going to look at The Fool in history and in literature. Lots of good stuff coming down the podcast pike. 
I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.